Looking to generate more revenue and build relationships with gamers worldwide? Let Exola be your guide. Exola, a global video game commerce company, has helped thousands of game developers and publishers of all sizes fund, market, launch, and monetize their games globally and across multiple platforms. To learn more, please visit xsolla.pro slash A-O-I-A-A-S. Hey everyone, I'm Trent Custers, co-founder and studio director at League of Geeks, and this is the Game Maker's Notebook. Today I've had a conversation with Mark Cook, co-founder and CEO of Shiny Shoe. Now, you may have heard of Shiny Shoe because of their incredibly successful game. And I mean, both commercially and critically, it's sitting in overwhelmingly positive on Steam at the moment, Monster Train. Now, this is a digital uh, card game, roguelike. It's, you know, it's contemporaries would be like Ring of Pain, Slay the Spire. That's the sort of vibe there you can see, but it's got an incredibly hellish and strange twist that involves a train and the fires of hell. But we actually, as we do always, we go back to the start of Mark's journey and he's got an incredibly storied journey as a game developer that starts literally in his early teens, uh, interning at some incredible studios like LucasArts and others um, in the Bay Area. And then we talk about his first gig in games. We talk about his exodus to Japan and working at an incredibly storied studio over there as well. We talk about his return to the States and starting up his own studio, Shiny Shoe. We talk about what it meant to start a studio, an indie studio in 2011, and what was happening in the industry at that point in time and the opportunities and the absolute convergence of different technologies and software and all of these incredible things. We also then talk about Shiny Shoe's work as a well-regarded co-development studio for the bulk of their 12-year almost history now and how Mark and his crew worked on actually coming full circle from his internship days, some LucasArts classics, as well as some indie darlings that you'll all know and love, no doubt. And then, of course, we talk about the game Monster Train that provided that, as Mark calls it, escape velocity to get them out of co-development and making their own games. Shiny Shoe have an incredibly iterative development style and had quite a smooth development process with this game. So I dig into that with Mark and find out what he feels actually led to the success there in the development of the game. And then, of course, we talk about the release and post-support development and stuff, and we move on to Inkbound, their next game. We talk a little bit about that, how that got kicked off, what it is, the inspiration. It's actually releasing in less than a month into Steam Early Access. So, look, Mark is an incredibly experienced, incredibly insightful game developer and, I guess, owner and head of a studio. He's gone from, you know, like I said, internships in the Bay Area through to programming, through to leadership positions, management, pitching, both in traditional game development, his own indie studio, co-development. There's so much to learn here from Mark's journey and he's an incredibly insightful developer. So without further ado, let's listen to Mark Cook. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. 
Hey, Mark. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We start off this podcast the same way every time, and I love it because it gets us it gets us right to the core of things. And the question is, as you may know, what was your first interaction with games that you remember? When do you remember games fascinating you in some way that put you on this journey to place you in that chair and at the helm of shiny shoe by, by well, I was going to say by the end of it, but I'm sure there's much more to go. So um, what was your first memory in games? I remember my father taking me to his place of work when I was a young child and he had a PC at work. We did not have one at home at that time. And I doubt that he was supposed to have a video game on that PC because (laughs) he was not working at a video game development company or anything like that. Um, But he had something that I was able to play. And I remember being fascinated by that. Um, So that was definitely one of my early memories. And then later getting a Nintendo entertainment system, the NES. Yeah, Yeah, great. um, And kind of diving into Mario and so on. So I was born in 81 to kind of give myself uh, away in terms of age and era. But uh, those were <laughs> just, my early memories were. I love it. Just lead in, just hand the idea over straight away at the start of the <laughs> podcast. Some people like they, they oh, you know, uh, I'm old. And so this was my, this was my, uh, my system, but they never give a precise year. So <laughs> I'm sure our listeners appreciate that you're out of now. Do you remember any particular games? Cause I was an NES kid as well. That was my first, I missed the kid across the road had an Atari. I remember Pong being my first like experience mm-hmm. with a video game console at his place. And it's just blew my, blew my mind. Um, and I'm sure I hassled them for years afterwards, but Ness was the one that our family had. Do you remember any of the games that really grabbed you? Absolutely. I mean, all of the Super Mario series, so Mm -hmm. Super Mario 1, Super Mario 2, Super Mario 3, and so on. Um, I definitely remember playing Mega Man a lot. And remember feeling that it was incredibly difficult at the time. (laughs) Um, We played Ninja Gaiden back then a lot, my friends and I, and that had the, like, you know, in retrospect, that, like, kind of cheapest game design I could imagine. It was like you jump forward and then a little bird would fall out, hit you and you'd fall into a pit and die and have to start the entire game over. So it's like classic NES game design, but uh, you know, it hardened our uh, hand-eye coordination, I, I do feel. <laughs> I, I have children now and you know, they like to play games, which is great. Yeah. Um, but I don't feel like they can't go and play those games if they're just too hard. <laughs> All these weird, and it's sometimes it's not even about them being too hard. It's just these design conventions that we've had for years and years and years that were absolute back then without them being around were just absolute inconveniences that I think the kids just don't tolerate these days. But actually, yeah, Ninja Gaiden, it's funny you're talking about difficulty because, you know, Nintendo has this, I forget what it's called, but, you know, you on your Switch, you can get these classic NES games or SNES mm-hmm. games. And um, <laughs> I got Ninja Gaiden because I was like, I actually missed this as a kid. This was one that I missed insanely hard, even as like a 36-year-old man, like incredibly <laughs> hard game. Um just yeah, just so um, props to you as a as a child playing that and succeeding. I think I probably would have had better odds as a child, maybe as well. So after the NES, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say okay. one of my other favorite memories about the NES and how hard some of those games were was like many games. I don't remember specifically like which ones were had this or didn't, but some games didn't have any save system at all. So we'd have to yes. leave it on all night long. And I'd have my parents yelling at me for using electricity and everything. We're just like, I think I can't save. I have to leave it on. <laughs> and especially back then as well, it sounds like, you know, your your dad had a computer. My my parents were 
almost completely like tech slash computer illiterate. So their kids are barking these things. I'm like, I can't turn it off because all I'm like acting like your your whole life will end if you turn off this console. I'm sure it would have been super right. confusing. Do you remember what it was about that? And you're speaking about difficulty and different things. Do you remember what it was about it at that point in time? Was there anything in particular that drew you to games? Was it the, you know, diving into the world or was it just like the challenge itself or? Yeah, I think it was the mechanical challenge and the feeling of triumph when you overcame those challenges. Um, And then a constant stream of incredibly difficult (laughs) games coming out back then, at least, um, (laughs) that kept us engaged. And then as I, I grew older, I uh, got into a variety of types of competitive gaming, um, both uh, digitally as well as things like Magic the Gathering and playing oh, cool. pen and paper RPGs and so on. So I can love it. Uh, those were more collaborative. It's uh, the puzzle pieces are already starting to fall into place. <laughs> <laughs> the fog is clearing. So, um, so what do you think was it? Because I'm, I mean, you've been you've been in games for a while. I mean, you've spent time in Japan and everything. So, mm-hmm. when, when did you first sort of touch your personal line of code, I guess, or actually game development, games grabbing you in a way in which you're like, game development is the thing for me. And how did that start? Well, I got incredibly lucky. I mean, I can see that super clearly in kind of hindsight. So I grew up in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, Mm -hmm. which has been a hotbed of game development activity for many years here in California. And that was, I think, even more true back then than it is today. Um, It was really like a mecca of game development in the United States, at least at that time. Um, And uh, so that was a benefit because I also had, I guess, come to some conclusion as a younger kid that I'm like, I really want to make video games. I love playing (laughs) video games and uh, making them seems interesting. Uh, Kind of another early lucky break was I had a childhood friend whose father was a computer programmer. Ah, there you go. And he taught us like a little bit about how to use quick basic on (laughs) MS-DOS to make like, here's how to draw a circle. And we would like, and lines and we'd make a stick man and try to make little animations and so on. But it was like an entry point into programming and the idea of using a computer to create. Yeah. I love Um, the name even quick basic, like someone in marketing was really trying to onboard people to programming. Yeah. yeah, Quick basic, get your, get get stuck in. And so uh, kind of that early introduction combined with living in an area where there was opportunities, plus Mm -hmm. having very supportive uh, parents, especially my mom. I was like, I really want to be a game developer. And uh, at that time, you know, the internet existed, but it was not accessible to many people. So Mm -hmm. um, I think we're talking like early nineties right now. So I was like, 11 or 12 years old or something like that. And so to kind of learn more information about game development, everybody went and bought these like big fat books that had like a thousand pages, like (laughs) tricks of the game programming gurus was a specific name that I remember (laughs) as a name of like a legendary old book. Um, And they would have a bunch of information that you couldn't find, you know, at least it felt that way at the time anywhere else. Um, And I, was still like baby steps in terms of programming. So it mostly like copy code samples, but you know, it's just like that level of familiarity and like tweak them a little bit and so on. Uh, Building was great. And there came a time when one of these books, like I can't remember which one, but this seems completely insane in retrospect, had like the authors had published like some of their contact information, including their phone numbers (laughs) in the back of the book. Um, And I saw that one of them lived I think they published like what city they lived into, like lived in the Bay Area. And I just called the phone number and I was like, nice. 
hey, I'm a kid and I'm trying to become a game programmer and I saw your name in this book and your phone number and I'm just calling you for advice. <laughs> and um, this person, you know, I'm sorry like to say that I've like completely lost touch with them, but I spoke to them on the phone a number of times. His name was Dave. He was very helpful. So Dave, if you're still out there, I want to say thank you for your, this early mentorship. <laughs> shout out to um, Dave. Shout out to Dave. And uh, Dave told me to go to something that was called the Bay Area Computer Entertainment Developers or BASED, which was like a monthly meetup, you know, just as we have those today, mm -hmm. where game developers would get together um, and so on. So uh, my mom took me to one. Yep. So this is again where I say having nice. supportive parents helped me because it was just like, you know, at nighttime on a weekday, she like <laughs> drove me to this thing because I didn't have a driver's license and I was like uh, maybe 13, 14. Um, and she stayed there with me the whole time. Like people were like, what the hell? Like when my mom and I walked in, they're like, what is a kid doing here? First of all, and his mom <laughs> is also here. Um, but uh, people were friendly and I ended up landing my first internship out of talking to people at Bayside, which is just like incredibly lucky to have that opportunity yeah. because of all these things coming together. Yeah, absolutely. And for your parents as well to take you there too, like, and to, to support you in that. I remember um, myself and a couple of others, we kicked, you know, reignited the IGDA Melbourne chapter years ago. Like in the, I think it was in the late 2010s. I'm just bringing it up. Someone's name. Just remember it. And, um, <laughs> and it's, there was, when we were kicking off this IGDA Melbourne chapter, it was like, it started to really pump. And then the, you know, the GFC happened in Australia and it started more and more people there. But there was actually a couple of folks who were the same story as you. They were like kids who were 13 or 14 and their dad or their mum would come and they would, <laughs> they would actually just hang out there chatting with all of us who were like in our 20s or, you know, some, mm -hmm. some older folks making, making games or have their own indie studios or slamming things together. And the dad, the dad would just stand there and talk and ask about, you know, no idea about video games, just their supporting back, but they had to be there because it was a licensed venue and there was alcohol being served. Right. And both of these kids that I remember being there have now gone on. One's a senior engineer on Call of Duty and now works at a new fantastic studio that folks have founded. It's 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 incredible to see. And I, I shout out to the mums as well because <laughs> this is now like I think there's been three podcasts where when I ask people how they got into games, it's like my mum bought me a console or my mum really supported yeah, yeah. me. So it's super inspiring, man, to 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 hear that, you know, that that supportive environment helped you get there. And then how supportive was that community at Bayset as well? Was it kind of just like, and especially you as a kid, do you remember them really embracing you and bringing you in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, like many of the conversations that they were having were over my head, but I listened intentively. This is like yeah. all at um, uh, like pizza parlor type places and so <laughs> yeah. on where they were having these. Uh, I remember yeah. there were two locations they would do it. One was in the like South Bay area. Mm -hmm. So, and the other one was in Marin. And these are like places oh, wow. in the yeah. San Francisco Bay area. And yeah. like, um, I ended up landing an internship at LucasArts through connections made through this, basically. <laughs> oh, so, wow. you know, LucasArts was, you know, another company that was in the area. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I would say definitely the people were really supportive and like willing to try to answer my uh, newbie questions, <laughs> uh, which was really awesome. So, yeah, I tried to go to that event as, as much as I could. So how old were you when you landed this internship? I think I was uh, 15 when I interned right. at LucasArts. And I imagine this is like unpaid internship. Just go along, learn what you can, absorb it all. They did pay me. They oh, did they did pay, pay you? They wow. paid me minimum wage. Yeah, of course. Uh, which <laughs> in the United States at that time, I think was, or at least in the, the city and county that I was working in was 
something like five dollars and seventy five cents American at the time, US. Yeah. Um, and you know, which was nothing. I think I probably could have gotten paid more working at McDonald's or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you're just happy uh, to be there at that phase. Absolutely. Do you remember what and, games you were working on, or how? Like what? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I got. I mean, the lucky streak early on continues. Yeah, let me tell you this because the two games I worked on that summer as a intern programmer were Grim Fandango <laughs> and Jedi Knight Dark Forces Two. Um, <laughs> Two games that are incredibly well regarded and still to this day. (laughs) And I've got my name in the credits on both of them, which was insane. Wow. There's actually like a post, I think it was on Reddit just recently, where a guy was talking about made this really heartfelt indie game and it hasn't really sold well, indie developer. And he posted and said how, just just talking about the power of the medium. And he was saying how Grim Fandango, I can't, it's, it bums me out. I can't remember this developer's developer's name, but it was a Reddit post recently. Um, (coughs) But he's saying that when he was, Playing Grim Fandango as a kid, his father was sick, quite ill, and there was a moment in Grim Fandango where he actually went next door, had a had a moment of realization um, in the game, and went next door and told his dad that he loved him. And his dad passed. I'm not sure how much how much later, oh. and um, it was a really special moment. It's I think, and so many people have so many fantastic stories about that game. It seemed to have touched some folks in many ways, <laughs> as yep. did Dark Forces in other ways too. But two incredible yep. games to just wander into. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't take any credit for anything in either of those games. <laughs> and I would be shocked if a single line of code that I wrote that summer <laughs> shipped in either title. Um, yeah. But uh, it was very fortuitous and lucky for me to get to work on those two amazing titles and meet people in the industry, all the amazing creatives. And so where did that lead? So obviously learning so much and meeting so many people, but what was the next step after LucasArts? Yeah, I kept trying to, you know, in addition to making games with my friends, um, which, you know, still we were making things that were going nowhere, (laughs) just learning and and so on. But um, in addition to doing that, I kept trying to find summer internships at different companies to kind of broaden my experience. Um, Mm. So I interned at a company called Digital Eclipse, which is still in business today and uh, seems to be doing great with their kind of uh, remasters and kind of, I don't know, preservation angle to older games that are fading away. So they're doing some really cool stuff. Um, I also had a summer internship at Imagine Media, which is now known as IGN. So I spent a summer working on a physical magazine as an intern where I was put in charge of like the, you know, why wouldn't they do this? It totally makes sense. The gruntiest grunt work you could imagine, which was like uh, <laughs> collecting cheats. This is back when magazines published cheats in the back uh, yeah. for games, you know, before you could Google the FAQ or whatever. So um, Dude, I, I, have, them. I have this image yeah. of you sitting like on the floor with like a stacks of magazines around you, like transcribing. Is that what we're talking about? Yep. And writing it <laughs> up for, for publishing in uh, Ultra Game Players was the name of the magazine that I was working on, <laughs> whose editor in chief was a guy named Frank O'Connor, who went on to like be one of the big bosses on the Halo franchise for many oh, years. Right. But anyways, wow. back Back then, that's what he was doing. Um, And the it was in the same office, like the American version of Edge was in there. It was called Next Generation. Yeah, Next Generation. Anyways, it was a it was a fun place. It was interesting. I got to review Spice World, the uh, Spice Girls 
PS1 <laughs> license title. Uh, so they gave me like the, the claim worst of fame so far. That's like you, that's <laughs> everything. Jedi Archives, Grim Fandango, sure. Spice World. Let's yeah, let's let's go. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. In that case, I was reviewing it. I, I was not on the development team <laughs> of that title, but. Uh, uh, and in any case, it was just trying to look for opportunities to broaden my experience yeah. different, with different things in the industry. These are such, it's, it's amazing as well, because these places that you just, you know, we talk about luck a lot with people on these, po- on these podcasts. When you, when you have a podcast with successful game developers that have, you know, made these games that have like yours have been commercially and critically successful and usually, you know, some way into a, some kind of a storied career or even if not so, we we're always talking about luck and this like just how much of a a proponent of you know or, or a propelling force through these things it is and the interesting thing about the things that you're mentioning i mean we haven't we haven't even gotten to your first actual job in games yet is that all of these places aren't just you know well known or you know notable games or anything like that but you seem to have been there around times that there were of quite cultural importance as well like you know next gen the time that next gen was around and you know being at lucasarts in the in the time of grim fandango and did you do you when you look back on it do you have any sort of sense of that feeling that like not just the luck about it but did it feel like you were really sort of in the heart of something or did you think it was just like this is games it's happening it's cool um or did it really feel like it was a place where special things were happening on a larger scale culturally well, you know, I find that an interesting insight, but as a younger person at that time, I really didn't have that perspective. So Nothing about the metazeitgeist of the yeah. cultural metazeitgeist of video games at 15. That's fair. Yeah. Back then I was just like, I'm, this is awesome. You know, I woke up every day, like pumped to go uh, to where I was working and just like try to absorb information and get stuff done and have fun. So, yeah. Hell yeah, Mark. That, of course, that makes total sense. Um, okay, so let's talk about that first actual job in video games when the internships turned into, you know, proper paying gig. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'll say one thing that I was very bizarre decision-making in retrospect for me. So I went to a university to study computer science um, and at that time, some of my friends who had been making games with me as we what? grew up, um, who also went through computer science programs and so on, they're all like, we're going to work for big corporations on like banking software or other corporate software. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, what, what the hell guys? Like what happened <laughs> to the game development dream? And then I kind of like, they didn't pressure me. I, I guess I decided like, maybe I'll give it a shot too. All my friends are doing it. Why don't yeah, I do right. it too? Okay. You know, yeah. they're all going to jump off a bridge. I guess I will too. So I uh, went and worked for a company called Plum Tree Software. They were making some corporate portal thing. Um, and I learned a lot in terms of software engineering, but I within six months, I was like, what am I doing? Like, I got to go back to the game development dream. So yeah. I did. Um, it was that quick I, a realization. You were just... Like after the, all these summer internships, even you were, you were like, this ain't it uh, with even yeah. within six months. Wow. Yeah. So I, I'm still kind of surprised that I did that, but, um, <laughs> I went to work for a company called nihilistic software was my first professional job, uh, working in games full time. Um, they were also in the San Francisco Bay area and are most well known for working on Starcraft ghost. <laughs> The cancelled legendary game that they were creating with Blizzard. Yeah, ouch. Were you were you there at that time? 
I interned at Nihilistic one summer and wrote some code that was in StarCraft Ghost. Yep. <laughs> so uh, more more of your intern code that didn't see the light of day even. Yes, yeah. that one might have shipped had the game shipped, but uh, you know, I was getting a little bit better at, at programming. But yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, and so yeah. how long were you at Nihilistic for? So I was there there full-time for, I think, about three and a half years okay. uh, before I moved to Japan. Yeah. And so do you remember, yeah, before we get onto the Japan thing, because that's, a, that's a, always an amazing leap of faith when people, you know, move countries. Uh, do you remember your first proper job, three and a half years? I remember that was about the same time that I spent in my first professional video games gig. And I just remember the learnings being so fast and so rapid. Do you remember any sort of key developmental things that you learned or like what like lessons that you've taken forward from folks around you or games that you worked on during your time at nihilistic yeah absolutely i mean the kind of i can think it back to many things mm. immediately so like the power of good tools yeah was something right. that you know we always like when we were making our little games on the side just had no tools like you know yeah. everything's hard-coded nothing is data-driven <laughs> um and just seeing what that first like seeing a professional team and how much emphasis there was on um, clear tooling was uh, was eye-opening to me. Mm. Um, getting really good at cross-disciplinary communication was another thing that like, uh, yeah. you know, I guess that many people don't have and I didn't either. Like first coming into a job like that, it was like learning the language of other teams and the types of things that they talk about and like, what does it mean to them? What's important to them? And so on and so forth um, mm -hmm. has always been something that's fascinated me and and trying to to learn some of that when I you know didn't have the same level of access to that in the past, mm -hmm. either working alone or in internships where sometimes you're more isolated than working on a, on a professional game dev team full time. Yeah. Um, and just uh, also tons of people who had far better kind of game development knowledge across of wide spectrum of things but you know i was focused on programming at the time so yeah. for me it was a lot of like what can i learn from these professionals who know so much more and i felt like i was learning a lot about technical details of things and asking a lot of questions and people were gracious by answering them so yeah, i mean it was it was amazing kind of like your own living breathing uh video game tomes of knowledge that you were talking about before yeah. right i remember our old tech director had this game um this book i think it was called game programming gems and they were like they, they looked like, you know, in Lord of the Rings when Gandalf disappears to research the ring and he's going through those books. And it, every now and then, like, they would just sit on the shelf and then, you know, one, every so often you just see him walk over and pull, pull, pull one out and <laughs> flick to a page. You're like, what's in these books? Amazing. Um, okay. All right. So, and nihilistic software, what, tell me about the sort of the, the kind of dev that you were doing there. I don't mean in regards to like programming. I mean, were you working on? Um, you obviously on, on StarCraft Ghost, was that for the whole time? Were you working on some licensed product? Were you working, did you spend sure. your time there on one, two, five games? What were you, what was it sort of like there? Yeah. So, uh, they were in, I don't know, this is how I would characterize it. At least yeah. I don't know if the studio leadership would have, <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah. in a space that has, somewhat disappeared in the industry like mm -hmm. i don't know the double a kind of console yeah. creator space so um i worked on a in addition to starcraft ghost um which was during an internship when i was mm -hmm. working full-time i worked on a game called marvel nemesis rise of the imperfects which was published by ea and marvel licensed yeah. obviously mm -hmm. um and also a conan the barbarian game for the ps3 and xbox 360 
uh, with the comic book Conan license. No Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mariah. Always ah. a uh, important clarification <laughs> on that one. But um, uh, which was a kind of they were both 3D third person mm-hmm. action games essentially. Yeah, cool. um, and so yeah, these were like games with budgets in the like five to ten million US range. Yeah. So it was like they they weren't small, um, but they weren't triple A either. And there was a period in like the early 2010s when a lot of companies that were working on similar types of games, Mm. similar scale kind of disappeared as like there was the indie revolution and AAA just got more and more expensive. So anyways, I feel like there was like a falling out of studios like that in that era. But um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. those were the types of games I was working on at the time. uh, In this was like 2003 to 2007 ish. Okay. And then coming off that, I mean, you is a move to Japan and Grasshopper manufacturer of all studios as well. In, in another incredibly storied and well well known studio. Tell tell me about this this leap of faith to Japan. Yeah, so I think two things were going on for me at that time. Um, one on the professional side, I was really inspired by some of the creativity that mm-hmm. it, it, some of the titles from Grasshopper manufacture. Yeah. Um, Killer Seven in particular was like really appealing to me because it was so weird, but also so I felt well realized in terms of its vision. Um, and I was feeling like I don't see how a game like this could ever be made in the U.S. at the yeah. time. Mm-hmm. I'm like how is this getting made professionally? Like I just don't, nobody, no other company in the U S is working on anything even remotely close to this. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, I had been working on games that had licenses associated with them and many other developers were too. So it was just a curiosity mm-hmm. and wanting to be involved in something as kind of unique and interesting as that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second reason was a personal reason. I was just, I had lived in the San Francisco Bay Area my entire life, basically, and was like, I wanted to try something different. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I grew up playing tons of video games from Japan. Kids who grew up playing games in the same era also played tons of games from Japan and probably mm-hmm. admired uh, Japanese game development in general. So I was like, well, let's see if I can make this happen. Uh, so I applied for a job from the U.S. Uh, at Grasshopper Manufacture. And... Tell me about when you when you landed and those those curiosities. Did you did you find the answer to your question? Did you find how these weird and wonderful games at Grasshopper Manufacture were being made when almost nothing in America of the same kind was coming out? I feel like kind of, but I also can't be a hundred percent confident that I'm right. Like I have a theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have a theory. But, uh, you know, I can't say that I'm sure. And, you know, I actually had a ton of fun learning a new language because I didn't really know Japanese before I moved to Japan. So um, I was uh, really enjoying uh, living in a kind of total immersion language learning environment (laughs) Um, and just the the kind of feedback loop of trying to say something. Maybe you you don't know the words or somebody doesn't understand you and then you like. Sometimes I'd like literally pull out a dictionary and like try to figure out what I was trying to say right then and like (laughs) correct it and then say it correctly. And then you see the person opposite you like understand you. That was like a rewarding feedback loop um, that I find we don't often get as adults professionally. It's like in school, we have tests. We have like ways that we're measured for like, are we learning? Are we progressing? But like now it's like, 
Am I getting any better at game development? I don't know. I hope so, but who, who can know? Um, <laughs> Verbal communication is one of those things where you do have a very clear, like negative or positive <laughs> feedback loop, right? That's that's absolutely true. I have so much respect for folks who, whether it's you know Westerners going abroad, or whether it's folks coming to you know um, you know to the states or to the UK or whatever. Communication yeah. and game development is so hard already and interdisciplinary. And as you were mentioning, like learning how to communicate with folks from other disciplines. I remember when I started off, I. I'm, game designer by trade when I started and I I did like a six-week programming course just to understand some of the jargon and be able to sort of get in the headspace and so to then walk into that same environment and throw yourself into Japanese as a second language is just amazing the culture was because I know some folks really thrive in that you know the Japanese work culture that they're quite renowned for there did you yep. how, how did you go in that environment in that setting as well well, uh, I approached it like I did in the United States, plus some amount of accepting the rules and systems in Japan. <laughs> but I, I'd say I did not fully adopt to the like I'm staying all night and sleeping at my desk all the time kind of uh, yeah. uh, work style you may have heard of. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd say most most people were not doing that either. There were there were some though. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, no, I, I worked mostly a normal day uh, yeah. when I was there. And so I think in those years as well, unfortunately, it was even like Western studios were doing the work all day and sleep at your desk thing, some of them too. So yeah. absolutely. So we're getting closer and closer to shiny shoe. Was there another step in between Grasshopper? Did you did you do anything else in Japan before you came back back West? Uh, yeah, I went freelance for a little bit. Um, at, it was kind of like the rise of the iPhone era. I was yeah. like intrigued by that, like many developers were. It was such a different platform. So um, in 2009, I think, started doing some amount of work making my own little small iPhone games right. and um, working with other people on theirs uh, for a bit. But then ended up moving back to the United States. And I, I guess because ultimately I felt that my professional outlook and possible upward trajectory were better in the U.S. than they were in Japan, right, basically. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I actually went back to work for Nihilistic, so I made a few more games with them. Oh, cool. Um, yep. So I worked there for another two years after that. Yep. And then does that bring us to 2011 and kicking things off with Shiny Shoe? Yes. All right. So that's actually the almost the exact same time when we started League of Geeks. So I, I understand that that environment it was a very exciting time in video games like you know the, the iphone had just like come in in a real big way the ipad had recently been released you know self-publishing on consoles and steam was becoming more and more prevalent and possible online tools for collaboration like even things like trello were new and this this wonderful thing you could have your project management software completely online and you know in a browser and everything and accessible right. for free a lot of the time too unity unreal start going free so rise of really, the unity engine same era yeah, now. yeah exactly and so it's a really interesting and i understand that allure of being a studio dev myself too and then all of a sudden you don't have to work on other people's games whether it be your bosses or like and stuff as fantastic as that was you make your own things so it's a really exciting time to start a studio what was it for you was it a kind of combination of all those things what was when that idea started to form in your mind about oh, we're going to give it a shot we're going to do our own thing what was the, the yeah. holy grail yeah a bunch of the things you mentioned were, were part of the consideration i'd say you know even since we were kids we were like trying to make our own studio names and Yep. pretending that we were like, you know, it's almost like role playing with it. We're professionals like, yeah, we've got our own yeah. studio name. We have different 
you know, uh, titles, yeah. even though we're all, you know, 14 year olds trying to make a game. And um, <laughs> so it was like, this seems like something that would be fun to do. So this seems like it would be something that would be cool. So kind of a lifelong kind of thing in the back of my head. Um, the other thing that I found as a professional was that uh, I really enjoyed working with a wide variety of people. We touched on that a little bit yep. uh, within game development and learning about what they did for their jobs and wanting to get involved in many different things because I had interest or felt like I had some kind of insight or I wanted some amount of control over it. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. So that goes from things like, how are we making the art? How is the marketing being done? Mm -hmm. How, what kind of contracts are we signing and what are the terms in those deals and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm grateful to Nihilistic for giving me like, I'd say pretty wide exposure to those types of things in a way that I think would not, was not, or is not common in general. Wow. Um, How did but, that come about? Just to dive into that, you're, you're yeah. a lead, were you on the leadership team, like lead programmer at Nihilistic? Were they just a very transparent yeah. company? Were you in a management, like a more business yeah. role there at times? They were a very transparent company, I believe. Mm. And uh, I eventually got put in the position of lead gameplay programmer. Um, cool. And I was... I mean, not to slap myself on the back too much, but I was like, <laughs> this is the place. Yeah, this is the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I was decent at pitching our games and, you know, and yeah, talking right. about them and so on. So uh, because of that, I didn't mind going on camera. I didn't mind promoting what we were doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I got the opportunity to go to pitch meetings where we were pitching publishers on yeah. certain things and um, got to be involved in that process more, uh, mm -hmm. which was amazing. I mean, I, I learned a lot from that. Uh, but uh, I felt like I always wanted more and more and more. And as I got more experienced and more opinionated, sometimes I, mm -hmm. I started to, you know, it's inevitable. There's going to be disagreements over the direction of certain things. Yeah, naturally. And then that kind of started to get me in the mindset of like, well, maybe I should give trying to do my own studio a yeah. shot along with all the other kind of um, industry changes that were happening with things like. I was definitely interested in mobile at that time and mm -hmm. was trying to convince Nihilistic to invest in mobile and they didn't want to for yeah. maybe, maybe for good reasons. You know, yeah. I, they had reasons. I disagreed yeah. with them, but you know, uh, anyways, that's what something that it was really interesting to me at that time. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of started to think more seriously about mm -hmm. doing it. Yeah. It was scary, man. Like it's trying to fine, take, right? take the jump. Yeah. Uh, did you do it alone or did you, did you have co-founders or anything? I had one co-founder initially who took yep. the leap with me and then pretty rapidly another person uh, left their job and joined us as well. So yeah, I right. considered that additional person also a co-founder. Yeah, so there were course, three yeah. of us essentially at the outset. Yeah. It's a great number, the three. I mean, you know, it, it's it's a fantastic way to balance yourself out. As what well is the, the tech startup, the hacker, hipster, hustler sort of thing, you know, it's a, it's yeah. a really great way to complement each other. And so did you... Like you said, you're interested in mobile. What was the initial plan for the studio? What was once you two got together and the other one came on board? Where were you, yeah. where were you heading? Well, frankly, it was like pretty basic and in <laughs> retrospect, perhaps naive and so on. Like it's the indie dream. We wanted to live the indie dream, make an awesome game and make some money, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, everyone um, else is doing it. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> so we made a, uh, we used Unity and we made a giant mech turn-based combat game called Offworld, um, which came out in early 2012, I want to say. Mm -hmm. So we, I think after like maybe eight months of development. Yeah, that's a rapid um, turnaround. Amazing. 
And uh, yeah, that was that was the first title we decided to make. I think because my team and I had all been working in console for a while and were familiar with like, including uh, you know, for years and kind of back to old school times when you'd have to optimize more and things like that, like things that were yeah. really important in the early mobile devices, especially because they were so underpowered yeah. in comparison to like an Xbox 360 or something like yep, that. Totally. Um, and so we had a really good looking game that ran well uh, with Offworld. And because of that, we got a pretty positive amount of featuring from both Apple and Google, like, you know, best games of the week. I have this screenshot from back then where like, Minecraft and Plants vs. Zombies are right next to Offworld in like the featured games. I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> of course, those games made, you know, millions and billions of dollars and Offworld didn't, but uh, <laughs> it was good company to be in. Yeah, one of these things is not like the others. But yeah, so, and that was, did you try the free-to-play thing or was that premium? We did. Oh, you we tried free-to-play, okay. Yeah, I, I was, probably shouldn't have, but uh, it was something that was like really, you know, mind bending to me at the time. It's like, yeah. what is going on with this free to play business model? It's so different um, than what I had been used to both, you know, growing up and yeah. working professionally. So we tried it, but yeah, that was like one of the main areas we screwed up on Offworld was the monetization design for free to play. I think it was just to like at that time in context for our listeners, if, if you're not familiar with that sort of period around 2010 to 2012, it's and like free to play was just mobile was just massive. Like people had come onto the I, there was the race to the bottom and then free to play came about on iOS and it was and and people just started to make silly, silly money. And you know, these things happen, you see these cycles in the industry where people are talking about this is the next big thing. It was the, it seemed like the next big thing that everyone, and everyone was trying to grapple with the ethics of it and how to do it properly or well, or it's just, it was a very, very interesting space to just like sit. I remember numerous at GDC, numerous talks I sat in on, on like monetization for free to play and things like that and what everyone was doing. Um, now, obviously, it's sort of crystallized in a particular direction. There's still interesting things happening in this space, but it was it really was this wild frontier at that time. Yeah, it, it was just looking back, I felt, you know, foolishly again, that we felt that some of the games that were making money hand over fist, let's say, yeah. had like the worst user experience, the worst graphics, the worst UI. It was like a spreadsheet translated into a mobile app with like barely any user interaction whatsoever. Yeah. And I'm like, we can beat this. We can yeah. do something better. And audio visual wise, we did. We blew them away, yeah. uh, which was great. That's why we got featured in all this stuff. Um, but they had a, I guess, effective monetization design and we did not uh, at all. So <clears throat> uh, eventually on Offworld, we kind of made our money back mm -hmm. and like a tiny bit more. Mm -hmm. uh, but I should say that in the context of we were paying ourselves next to nothing yeah, okay, um, yeah. and living off of our savings. Like we had no investors. Uh, we did end up taking a publisher on that game because we we're like, uh, like we're going to go bankrupt if we don't. So <laughs> yeah. we took like a small advance from a publisher on that mm -hmm. title. Um, but yeah, it was, it was obvious that like the, let's start our own company and the first game's going to be a hit. And then we're going to sail off into the sunset that that dream was not going to happen. <laughs> Very sobering moment there. So what, where, where do you go from there? Like you know, it's to dive into your own studio and yeah, have the indie dream in mind and have that featuring alongside these other two mega hits. And then that sobering moment of like, oh, okay, this is. This is actually going to be harder than perhaps we thought, and needing to muster it up and go again. What was the what was the next shot? Yeah, so we were thinking a lot about that at that time, and um, 
ultimately decided on a strategy that we have, again, of course, since changed many, many years ago. But uh, we decided to do what a lot of developers do, which is to supplement our original game development with work for hire work. Yeah. Um, but the specific way, since we are so small still, we still at that time only had three full-time people, mm-hmm. um, decided to do it in a way where we were going to like focus on working on other people's projects for some amount of time and just socking away as much money as possible. Mm-hmm. And then we were going to stop doing that again and then start to develop another new original title. Yep. Um, so we started down that path. And thankfully, due to having worked professionally for years, had you know plenty of connections to try to yeah. use to try to find work, um, which is something that like, yeah, I'm always amazed when people come straight out of school and are like making their own company and like don't have any of those connections. It just seems even harder. Like <laughs> I, I felt lucky in a way or not lucky, but like I was glad, let's say that we had worked professionally in the past and, and had the ability to to kind of lean on some of our contacts looking for work. Even the um, pitch experience that you had too, you know, you might not be pitching your own games to for the co-development contracts, but being able to, you know, get get people on the phone or, you know, bump into folks or, you know, have those meetings yeah. at E3 or GDC to land the work. It's a super valuable skill. Yeah. But during that time to like, because service-oriented work can only be so profitable, mm. um, you know, we were, again, trying to sock away as much money as we could so that then we could later have time where we weren't mm-hmm. uh, working on other people's projects. Yep. Um, and because of that, we were still paying ourselves. We like... In- gave ourselves somewhat of a raise, but still far below market rate. Yeah. Um, and one of the co-founders decided that uh, he was ready to leave the business. Like yeah. he, he was fed up with it and just didn't want to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, fair enough. Uh, that's one piece of advice I would give people starting a company too, is like have a really frank conversation about that if you haven't, because we did not. And so it came as like a huge shock to me when that happened. Yeah. Um, but I, I wish we had had a more like clear conversation about just like, you know, how much are you willing to sacrifice? How long are you willing to do this at the current state of the business and so on? Yeah, uh, just aligning on your your expectations of what you're getting into as well, right? Like, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I think sometimes people can have those chats with potential partners that they're working with or, you know, their actual business partners of a long time about, hey, this particular game they're working on and this is the indie dream, we're going to do this. But then the conversation about, Either what what do we do if it doesn't pan out, and what do we do if it does pan out? What if we achieve that indie dream? Which is another one that I, I see happen is yeah. you know folks have this immense success, and then the different directions or differing values or differing ideas. It's absolutely critical to have those upfront conversations. Great advice. So, Mark, one of the first one of the first times that I, I think I heard about Shiny Shoe was actually as an incredibly well regarded co-development studio and I mean you're do- you're doing such great work and you know we both come from licensed titles as well there's so much fulfillment in that especially like helping facilitate other people and other people's games but as as you said you, you started this studio for the indie dream it sounds like you had a strategy lay out lay out a little bit more of that or tell me how how it was going and how you got closer and closer to that to that sort of escape so to speak or being able to get onto your own thing Yeah, yeah. So it definitely evolved over time. And Mm -hmm. we came to a point where we realized that uh, the approach of that I mentioned before of like trying to build up cash for a while and then cutting off the work for hire work and then doing our own thing, Mm -hmm. that wasn't really going to be sustainable or or work well. So uh, we started to grow the studio um, Mm -hmm. via working on bigger projects that needed more people and were more complicated and more prestigious 
which mm-hmm. was awesome that we were able to do that. And we kind of grew the studio to around uh, 15 or 16 people, I think, at that time. Mm-hmm. And then we split our work between um, working on other people's projects while working with a small number of our staff, like maybe two or three people could work full time on our original content that we were still, you know. Yeah aiming to create. Um, and were you and doing I, that? Was that like those two to three people, were they in the background actually full development or was that sort of concept development until you could get to a, the end of a project and throw some more people on it? Or was that all that you needed for the kind of games that you were making to just keep them bubbling along? Yeah, it was, those people were working full time on it. And uh, we, I think just at that time had one designer and one programmer and yeah. we wow. were you know, prototyping and iterating on things using like off the shelf assets. But yeah. there would be times when uh, folks, other people could get involved, like artists could spend a week working on assets for like these small games <laughs> that we were making and so on. Okay. So um, it was kind of like a hodgepodge of trying to put it together. Definitely not ideal. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we were working on some, uh, I guess, amazing, amazing projects that were kind of elevating our studio's reputation, which was great in the kind yeah. of work for hire space. And one that I wanted to touch on specifically, there was a, a connection that was really awesome. We did Grim Fandango remastered with Double Fine. So <laughs> like I got to work full on circle. that. Yeah, full circle, exactly. I was an intern later and then uh, got to work on the remaster as the the producer at Shiny Shoes. So that's um, incredible. Isn't yeah. life, life is surely is stranger <laughs> than fiction sometimes. How special. So are there any other notable titles that you're that you're really proud of that you know that you kind of pinch yourself about being a part of or that the studio just really really kicked ass on because i know as a co-development studio sometimes you're sometimes the deal literally is it's a white label white label thing um and many folks don't know that alongside this other studio you know shiny shoe and your crew are are there kicking ass and helping them these games come together yeah, we, we did all of those LucasArts remasters that uh, wow. Double Fine has been involved with as well. So mm-hmm. we did Day of the Tentacle and Full Throttle 2, yeah. um, which were fun. And uh, we got to work on the Banner Saga series. Oh, um, right, with the Stoic crew. With the Stoic crew, yeah. Fantastic. And we worked on Subnautica as well and Subnautica <laughs> okay. Below Zero. So, you know, yeah. we got to work on some some great, well-regarded titles. That's um, awesome. And so it was great for building our skills and and kind of learning things that we're still applying today. Yeah. So the, one of the interesting things about these games that you've mentioned is they're not mobile games. So had you, yep. was, and I know that the industry, like, again, if we go back to that free-to-play or mobile landscape, right, I remember there was a point when we were developing our Mellow where I was looking at the App Store and I'm just like, we don't have the money to be successful on this platform. And obviously, you know, the bottom was falling out of premium and everything. And when I say money, I mean to be able to pay for advertising to get to, into this top 10 or top 100. And so a lot of people were pivoting more towards that, you know, especially indie studios like ours towards that PC and console independent development as that became greener and greener pastures. So were you as a studio still focusing on mobile or was a sim- similar thing happening where you're developing, you've obviously got the skills to do high-end PC and console games. Was the studio moving towards that as part of your escape velocity, as you called it? Yeah, well, that's definitely what happened for sure. I would say that there's less grand strategy there and more t- trying <laughs> to take advantage. Yeah, <laughs> tactics of trying to take advantage of uh, the fact that we were an engineering heavy studio for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think we. I wouldn't say that that's true anymore. But for a long time, yeah. we were and um, had a bunch of people who had experience working on like custom C++ game engines and so on, which yeah, was right, okay. a harder skill to find for um, a lot of people. And so 
like I think every project I just mentioned, uh, that's not true. Uh, most of them did not use Unity. Let's put it that way. Oh, interesting. Um, so a lot yeah. of the projects you worked on, are you talking about your own or some of the projects that you were co-developing? The co-develop. Right. So these projects. are these are folks coming to you with like projects that they've rolled their own as well yeah. or Unreal sort of stuff. Uh, we've done a tiny bit of Unreal, but no, yeah, it's okay. mostly like getting into other own, people's, basically. Yeah. And the <laughs> level of technical complexity on some of them was got really high. And so there's yeah. like fewer people out there who can do it. And so mm -hmm. I think that was a, a helpful property that we could both like reliably deliver yeah. good work and had skills that were in demand and harder to find. Hmm. All right. So tell me about Monster Train and how that came about, how it's, because I mean, that was your, was there anything before that's, that sort of punched you out of this? Like, or was Monster Train the one? Yeah, well, Monster Train was definitely the the kind of breakout hit. There was yeah. uh, one other title that we did that was highly unusual. Um, <laughs> there was an original game uh, called Death's Door. Now, there has been another game that came out also called Death's Door. Right, okay. Uh, more recently, it's not that one. <laughs> uh, we were, this was back when we had like a, very small team trying to make original titles mm -hmm. while the vast majority of the studio was doing co-development projects. Yep. So um, we were inspired by Twitch Plays Pokemon oh, and right, yeah. made this gothic horror RPG that was played in the same way. So huh. you were on a Twitch channel and we also shipped this game on Mixer and you would, as a player slash viewer, mm -hmm. would vote on what happens next. And it was a kind of roguelike text-based like it was really low budget it had art mm -hmm. but it was like you know you'd read out what's happening in the story and then you'd see your stats and you get to vote on what happens next mm. um but rather than being kind of an adaptation of an old game onto that platform with that input mechanism yep. it was designed from the ground up for it which meant we got to do a lot more kind of interesting stuff i feel like with it um mm. and so yeah that, that was a, a fun project it was weird so it was like how do you even monetize something like that? Did you, was it like through funding with Twitch or something? I know they were doing some weird stuff there, funding games and different things yep. at some points. So we self-funded the first version of that, like super low budget. And yep. we put it on Twitch and Mixer, um, both of which were like very interested in what we were doing because they were both at that time, well, I mean, Mixer was like fighting to survive against Twitch yeah. and Twitch was like investing a lot in uh, what ended up being called Twitch extensions, the way to mm -hmm. add additional interactivity onto streams. Yeah, and right. so here we are like right at the right timing, doing something interesting with the interactivity that could take advantage of like their emerging technology. So, yeah. um, so, so we it's a doing great that. place to find yourself. Yes, totally. Like uh, that's another thing that if you can ever predict like, oh, there's going to be some new platform that's going to grow and you know, like people <laughs> yeah. try to jump into VR, which was like, you know, pretty good bet. I'd yeah. say at, uh, to try to like be at the forefront as a smaller studio. It's like an opportunity. It's an opportunity yeah. to possibly break out. Um, and what ended up happening with that game is Mixer liked it so much that they paid us to make a sequel that was exclusive to Mixer and was no longer on Twitch. So uh, we did that as okay. our next project. Right, um, yeah. uh, that was a, the final original game we made before we did Monster Train. So... How did Monster Train come about? Tell us because you, you say the Death Door is a weird game. Monster Train's got its own little dose of weirdness as well. Um, actually, before we get on to how it came about, why don't we, um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Monster Train, why don't you give them 
the elevator pitch for Monster Train. Tell them, tell our listeners what what this game actually is. So Monster Train is a deck building card game set in hell where you play as the monsters of hell. Uh, hell has frozen over and the uh, forces of heaven in the game are trying to kind of destroy something called the pyre, which is a crystal that powers all of the energy and fire in hell, essentially. Um, the, the core gameplay, I'd say, if you want to compare it to another title, probably its closest competitor is Slay the Spire, which is a yep. fantastic game we love. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so deck building card game. One of the core twists in it is it's uh, set on a train itself. However, we love joking about this. This train is vertical. It's a bunch of floors stacked <laughs> on top of each other, which I'd be happy to tell you why that is. But I love when people are like, don't you idiots know how a train works? <laughs> <laughs> of course, there's, it's got to be there in the Steam forums for sure. Yeah. So, so okay, let's, <laughs> I mean, and the game is great. Like, again, let's go back. Tell us how, tell us how it came about. Yeah. So uh, after we made the second Death's Door title, we're like, let's, try to do a studio game jam. We had built up enough like reserve cash that we could stop doing everything mm-hmm. and spend a few weeks uh, making a wide variety of titles. So we did, which was a I, really re- rewarding experience. What size are you at this point? I think still like 16, okay, cool. 16-ish. Um, yeah, great. Did you so split, split into up? teams? Yeah, okay, we great. We split into like maybe yeah. four or five teams um, and made two games eat for each team in some cases, I think. So oh, I wow. think we made something like 10 games. And one of those prototypes was the precursor to Monster Train. It had mm-hmm. many differences. You know, it was not on a train. It was not <laughs> set in hell. Uh, it had cards, but yeah. it was uh, Monster Train is turn-based. Uh, but this game was not. So the, the mm-hmm. original prototype for it, we were... It was in a vertically stacked tower, so that yeah, was okay. kind of uh, the metaphor was like a building back then. So right, it made more okay, sense yeah. with the, <laughs> you know, like, the tower. This makes too much sense for us. Yeah, we got to diversify. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was a kind of hybrid of real time and cards. So like uh, in like in many card games, we had a mana resource, mm-hmm. um, and you would gain that with a timer, and then you would be able to use cards, and you could draw cards would come on a timer, and so yeah, we were okay. trying this kind of hybrid real-time system with it. Um, it, We ultimately decided that didn't really work, but we felt that there was something interesting in the bones of that idea that was Mm -hmm. worth pursuing further. Yeah. Okay. And was when you went into this game jam, was the intention sort of like almost this Highlander-esque thing that like there would be one game that you would select out of it that you would continue forward or? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the, the worst scenario in a way, yeah, it would be like nothing. There's no, we don't like any of the ideas. So, <laughs> um, yeah. However, also it's not great to pursue something that, of course, has no chance of success either. But how can yeah, you? Naturally. So we we really yeah. wanted to find our next original title um, as part mm. of a part of this development. So uh, part of that game jam, I should say. And so we felt that this idea had enough legs to be worth pursuing further. And so mm-hmm. we started to invest more into building monster train. Uh, but we knew that there was no way that we could finish that game at the kind of level of ambition that we wanted, mm-hmm. uh, by self-funding. So we sought a publisher. We got to the point where we had a demo that we thought was pitchable and went, went around pitching. Ah, awesome. And so how long did it take you to get from that sort of that game jam to pit to the pitching demo? 
Yeah, I think that was maybe like five months or so. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Where we had evolved a number of elements of the game design and had um, started to integrate something that started to look more like the final art, but was still pretty yeah. far away from how it ended up looking. Right. Was the concept there? Was the weird monster train concept You were on a there? train. Yeah. <laughs> uh, initially, the train was in, uh, was in England, though. It was... Uh, <laughs> It wasn't in hell. It later came to hell. Um, right. So yeah, it definitely evolved over time. Uh, and it it was honestly part of the reason why it's on a train. It's like we wanted something that was unusual. Uh, and we're like exploring yeah, a lot stuff. of ideas for things that could be different mm -hmm. uh, kind of setting wise. Fantastic. So let's talk about that pitching process, because as you mentioned, you'd had some experience being on the traditional studio model yeah. side, like let's, let's say. Uh, you, you eventually landed with Good Shepherd. I'm keen to talk about that and you, and you know, your relationship there and how that came about, but tell me about that pitching process and how you went about it. You'd obviously pitched before and had a co-development studio and stuff like that, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. So we had a demo, a pitch deck, a budget proposal, a list of the things we're looking for. You know, I feel like it was a pretty well organized pitch. Yeah. Um, but certainly it was not an easy process. Like, I mean, we, I think I tried to pitch like literally anybody who was publishing games at that time, yeah. basically. Yeah. Uh, also because I just, it had been so long since we pitched for an original title publishing deal. Like, I don't know, you, you, I don't even know what the lay of the land is at that point, right? Like yeah. we hadn't been talking to publishers. So, um, we went out and talked to a, a ton of people and, uh, mm -hmm. um, it was interesting, an interesting experience. A lot of the more indie-oriented publishers were not looking to fund deals at the scope that we were aiming for. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah. And so a lot of potential publishers were just eliminated immediately because of that. Yeah. Um, like we weren't looking for mega money at all, but it was still, you know, in the low seven figures. So it yeah. was high enough to scare away a lot. Uh, yes, yeah, certainly. want to take those type of risks. Yeah, those indie there's you know, that almost cuts out, you know, over 50% of those indie publishers, especially maybe at that time, like what, three or four years ago. Um, so yeah, it only leaves a few on the board. We went through a similar process when we were, you know, looking around for funding for our, our title before the ones that we're working on now. Do you remember, do you think that there was something about your pitch or your process other than the, the game concept itself that that struck a chord with some folks? Do you think that you had some form of unfair advantage anywhere in that pitch? Yeah, I'd say kind of double-edged sword. I, I think some people saw us as a successful co-development studio and there was some amount of lack of faith that we could pull off a successful original title. Um, Interesting. And yeah. so I, we had some headwinds on that side. And then... Um, Simultaneously, though, I think the fact that we had worked on all these games and had a good reputation also helped us. It's like these guys yeah. know how to <laughs> manage how a to project <laughs> you know, and they probably aren't going to you know, waste all our money. They're probably going to ship something when they say they're going to ship it and so on. Yeah. So um, I'd say kind of a double edged sword on that. But um, uh, yeah, I, I think the only thing that was I'd say that was like the main thing that was really advantageous for us besides the game concept, which just mm -hmm. that we had a reputation and had been around shipping games for years. So, yeah. And what year, what year was this? Was this 2018? This was, or? I think, early 2018. Yeah. yeah, okay, okay, cool. And so talk to us about Good Shepherd. They ended up being the publisher for the game. I imagine they're the ones that took you up on your pitch. How did that yeah. whole process go down? 
Yeah, well, I'd say pretty smoothly overall. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like any deal, there was a variety of things we negotiated before mm-hmm. coming to a final agreement. Yeah, um, sure. And I had the experience in the past of working with mega publishers like EA, Activision, yeah. um, THQ, and so on back in my my prior time working on the Mm-hmm. What I guess now is called the old packaged goods industry when you're making <laughs> games for shipping to stores and then GameStop and so on. Yeah. Um, but uh, working with Good Shepherd was very different to that in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were more hands off than I had ever experienced. <laughs> and they also were quite transparent with things that I asked to see, like, you know, mm-hmm. I want to see how we're spending money on this or that. And, uh, you know, I, I felt that that was hard to get information out of some of the mega publishers yeah, sometimes on these types of things. So, um, yeah, it was a positive experience. Had you, I remember you saying that you had a publisher for Offworld to, you know, it sounded like to yeah. close some sort of a cash flow gap or, you know, to get you, get you to launch. Had you been self-publishing your titles in between Offworld and these? Yes, but yeah. the scale was so small that uh, uh, it was just like, it's hard to really call it like what you would imagine <laughs> professional game publishing. Like yeah, when we, right. the second uh, mobile title that we did, um, that, that was like more akin to it. Like this is like in the era where, you know, which is probably still true on mobile essentially at this mm-hmm. point where like buying ads is the only way to reach new customers. Basically, yeah. if you don't yeah. have some additional built in, uh, network of people you can leverage mm-hmm. like a larger publisher would. So um, we definitely were doing some of those things, which I found intellectually interesting, trying to figure out how to optimize ad spend on Facebook. That type of thing was like something yeah. I had never done before and found, you know, some amount of curiosity for, but um, yeah, like the, uh, the death's door game that we made, there was really no better marketing than having Twitch or Mixer featured on the front page, which they did. So there was like, what else can we really do? Yeah, you know, that's point, it. Yeah, um, it's for, done. For such a weird thing. Uh, yeah. So this, uh, and I'm assuming just because of the the format of the game, w- were you pitching a PC slash console game from the start, or was it just PC at the start? Yeah, we were just pitching PC at the start because yeah, we. Cool. And we had plenty of uh, experience going to console, but we just didn't want to distract our development team with dealing with it uh, yeah, initially. Totally. It's good as well for you know an investor slash publisher to know too that if the game pops off that your team has the skills to be able to then deploy it to other things yeah. you're going to be thinking forward in that way too. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the the development of Monster Train before we get onto the design or you know its its success and its release and things like that. Uh, being a co-development studio, as you mentioned, you know one of the strengths that this publisher would have seen is your experience in development and managing projects. How how did the development go you know some projects you you look at the end and you go we're going to go abc and you know maybe there's a couple of letters in a different order but it goes generally quite smoothly was it one of those projects or did it did it have its own big moments and and struggles before you before you got it out the door surprisingly i mean to me as well it was fairly smooth Um, yeah right and something that's been really important to us as a studio is um, developing a really strong culture of feedback. Uh, mm-hmm. And that kind of goes just like our own team telling each other what we think about the game, as well as how we interface with our play testers and encourage them to give feedback and pre-release mm-hmm. testing. Uh, but the reason why I bring this up now is we have a, a very, I'd say very iterative development style. And it's, I don't see 
into tons of other studios. Uh, so, you know, Trent, you talk to more people and know yeah. more about how other people are developing games than I do, I'm sure. But um, we we change direction on design elements a lot. And we are constantly trying to focus on whatever is going to deliver like the most player value and make the game as interesting as possible. And sometimes what we thought last week would do that is not the same as what would do next week. So you could call that chaotic and it can feel chaotic at times. Um, but at the same time, I think with the open and honest feedback and kind of like uh, always trying to deliver value to the player, like we, I think usually make pretty good decisions about what to work on at any one point in time. Now, yeah that does make it kind of hard to plan for the big picture. So the way that I felt as kind of project managing our studio on monster train and now on Inkbound is like, we have this kind of high level plan for like when certain things need to happen roughly, like we need to, for localizing the game, that's got to start here. So we've got to have all our text done by this time. And like these yeah. types of, we need to start doing QA at this point and so on. So these kind of like high level production plans, but then in between those, like we really want to be as flexible as we possibly can, yeah. which was another thing that was nice about working with Good Shepherd was they were okay with some of the things that we had like put in the pitch that were like, we really think we should do this. We later realized we're like, mm, no, we went completely <laughs> that was wrong. Yeah. yeah, that was wrong. Yeah. And we think that's a waste of time. And it was in the contract. Like, let's say even things like that. Yeah. We're wow. just like, we don't want to do this. They were core to the game, essentially, like strong enough to actually be part of the contract. Yeah. Right. Like as pitched, yeah. it was yeah. in there. And we're just like, we don't want to do this at all. We think this is a total waste of time. Yeah. And they were receptive to our kind of conviction about what was worth investing in <laughs> and what wasn't. Um, you know, there were some questions about like, well, what are you going to do with the money? Well, it's okay. We're going to do these other things instead that we think provide more value. But uh, uh, so, yeah, I like... I say, given how chaotic that might have sounded, perhaps with mm -hmm. like this highly iterative style of development, um, we also kind of at the same time kept this high level picture of what has to get done by when and were able to make everything fit. And so there were no delays and no real big production mishaps at all in terms of wow. the overall schedule uh, of the game and how development went. There, are, there. Are, I mean, I have no doubt there are developers right now muttering curse words under their breath at you, <laughs> hearing how smooth this has gone. You know, like the it's 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 amazing. It's amazing that. Tell me a little. I'm actually keen to dig into this a little bit. You you've spoken about this sort of overarching broad structure of, you know, we need to have this by here and these larger things. But then, how do you ensure the classic challenge of video games? Is there so much stuff to go in these games, and especially when you're pitching folks and the money runs out at some point, do you do you provide time for iteration, knowing that you do you just leave say thirty percent or twenty percent of your schedule with blank blank spots in it? Uh, mm. How how do you actually go about ensuring something that sounds like it's so core? such a cool value to your studio, this iteration, which is such a, an important thing to game development and design. How do you yep. ensure that you protect that and not just fill it with a content, you know, waterfall list? Yeah. And I've, I've worked on projects in the past where, uh, you know, this is something I've seen with big publishers. And I, I mm -hmm. mentioned that Good Shepherd was okay with removing things that were like, we thought for sure were great ideas initially. I've seen deals where if it's like, well, you promised somebody that you're going to do that. And it's in yeah, the contract okay. and you said you thought it was a good idea. Well, you have to do it. Even if the development team's completely resisting it, it says everyone on the team thinks it's a bad idea. It's like, no, you said you were going to and you have to. Wow. Um, and so, I mean, I kind of 
at least somewhat understand that. Like if it's ever yeah. been promised publicly in any marketing materials and so on, but it's just <laughs> yeah. like, it's just like bigger companies. It's harder to turn the ship once you get going in a certain yeah. direction. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, in any case, um, so yeah, I mean, definitely some amount of padding. Like that's just you know typical project management sense when you're trying yeah. to come up with a schedule. It's like okay, we think it's going to take this long, and getting good estimates in game development and any software development is like incredibly hard, right? So we know yeah. no matter what we come up with is wrong. Um, padding that to some extent, and then also being willing to cut too. Like I think we were constantly reordering the priorities of certain things. Uh, especially in like the, let's say the last one third of development, like you might have yeah. a million extra things you want to do a million ideas and be like, okay, you know, is this one more important than this one? Cause they require the exact same people to work on it. Yeah. And we would just always work on the ones that we felt were most important. Um, yeah. and whatever fell off the schedule, we would just cut from the game. And, uh, thankfully monster train did well enough. We were able to patch some of those things into the game after it came out. Yeah. Um, but it was just, uh, yeah, not like being flexible on what's in the game as well, uh, which there's limits to that, of course. Like if you miss some key thing, your game could end up sucking. But uh, we just constantly reprioritize, basically. I love it. Sound advice. So speaking about the success of the game, um, it's, it's obviously come out to resounding success. It, it's fantastic. And not just commercially but critically i mean you've got the covered overwhelmingly positive on on steam which is just absolutely incredible congratulations i mean there's almost <laughs> today in video games there's almost no better you know um sort of trophy or medal that someone can hang around your neck saying that you've made a good game than the masses on steam hitting um getting you know, overwhelmingly positive do, what do you think especially with you know slay the spire was you know a predecessor to your game that was out there similar there's other games like ring of pain out there it's it's becoming Although it wasn't when you started, it's becoming obviously more and more saturated, this roguelike digital card game genre. What do you think it was about the design specifically about Monster Train? Have you, have you thought much about this, about what actually struck a chord with folks or set that brush fire of success going? And also the, the critical success too. Yes. I mean, definitely I've thought about it. And um, I think... For me, the main reason that Monster Train had the level of success that it had is that we were able to create a game design system that offered the ability for the player's power to kind of get out of control sometimes <laughs> and otherwise was a challenging kind of series of interesting decisions. Right. As it's a strategy game, right? So yeah. um, like that famous Sid Meier quote, uh, you know, games are a series of interesting decisions or the best ones are. Um, yeah, there was like a lot of potential theory crafting mm -hmm. in the way that we kind of structured the, the way that the monster clans worked and the way the cards and the upgrades worked. Um, but we allowed for in the design sometimes for the player to get just ridiculously overpowered, which if that happens sometimes, but rarely enough, it can feel really rewarding. And it's possible in the structure of a roguelike because at the end of the run, all the player state or nearly all of it is thrown away. Right. Uh, so you can start over again, which is not something that's available in many other types of game design. So, um, yeah. I think the, the combination of those things on the design side and, uh, good, you know, very hand wavy, but good balance um, <laughs> plus a fairly polished presentation and interactive 
interaction, touch and feel, I should say. Yeah, uh, the game feel was really, really strong. Definitely something I found when I played it. It's just, it just feels good to play this game as well, moving up and down the carriages and everything. It's um, So tell me a little, little bit about the concept as well and how it, because that's a weird one that you're trying to even creating trailers or trying to explain this game to folks, right? Like how... Yeah how it seems like it obviously landed incredibly well how much was that a part of the conversation when it hit the ground and how how well did people just gobble that up this this weird concept that you have for your game yeah i mean well we definitely had some people really get into the lore and (laughs) got interested in this um strange world and i give a lot of credit to our kind of writer and lore master brendan on our team Mm -hmm. who um frankly was dropped like, hey, Brandon, it's on a train. Figure it out, you know, like make it cool. Uh, <laughs> on a train in hell. Uh, let's make it interesting. Um, and he did a great job kind of uh, creating something that that worked for that. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we wanted something eye-catching, something unusual, and thought a train had some interesting advantages. And some of it came into the design of like how you choose your direction on the map in a way that... Yeah kind of felt with some amount of intuitiveness as the train moved through this thing, like what options are available? It's depending on where, which train track you've chosen and so mm. on. Um, but it, I think in retrospect, it was also, it's unusualness also created like an opportunity to create some fun lore that, you know, some of our players kind of sunk their teeth into. So yeah. uh, as a strategy game, that wasn't as front and center as it would be in a story-based game, but we tried to permeate that throughout all these like little tooltips on cards that gave backstory and so on. Um, and, and we found that certain players really got into it. Hmm. Amazing. Yeah. Those, those hooks there to like, you know, the roguelikes have that amazing thing that like you say, you're in it and you can have these runs that are wildly powerful, then things reset and you go back to the meta, but then having this, this rich law, even a law that just has like a really interesting hook that people can, it's even another level of investment or sort of meta beyond the meta game aspect of it that people could invest themselves into. Um, yeah. Let's talk about, let's talk about Inkbound because, you know, a monster train's out there. It's doing its thing. The, tra- the train is off and away from the station. <laughs> um, tell us about the, your game that you've got coming up, Inkbound. Yeah, so we're working on a new title called Inkbound. It shares some kind of design DNA with Monster Train. So it is a roguelike. It is a co-op online roguelike where it is set in a world um, where special characters called binders, anything that they write into a book using special ink becomes reality. Uh, mm. However, these books are... Uh, under threat from a evil force called the Unbound that are trying to unbind these books from the inside and destroy them. And uh, you are one of many potential heroes who is trying to save this magical and dangerous world of Inkbound. So uh, you do that by meeting up with either friends or strangers online uh, and going on roguelike runs. Uh, Although it is a roguelike, it is a strategy game. It's played from a kind of different camera perspective it does not have cards so there are some like core differences between mm-hmm. uh monster train and inkbound yeah. but definitely we're trying to create the same types of um design elements that i was mentioning like a series of consistently interesting decisions and sometimes the ability for player power to get out of control in a really fun <laughs> way like where you 
you feel smart. It's like a razor line. It's like you don't want to be too strong all the time because then it's boring. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be getting crushed all the time because then it's disheartening. But yeah. you know, if you can ride that line and sometimes allow it to happen, it can be really fun. And how did how did this idea come about in the studio? Did we did we run another game jam? Was it apparent like as you're making Monster Train, it sort of it yeah. formed in the ether or conversations? Uh, no, this time we took a little bit of a different approach. We decided that we really loved making Monster Train, that mm-hmm. it was fun, rewarding. We had a lot of fans of that type of genre, that type of game in the studio. And we wanted to parlay the experience of making Monster Train into another strategic roguelike, basically. So yeah. we came, you know, we did a bunch of brainstorming, but we put it in the context of we want to make another strategic roguelike. And initially, Inkbound was a card game, actually. Um, and we uh-huh. ended up taking that away, which was a surprising, you know, in retrospect, that's kind of surprising that we did that. Um, but uh, we felt that ultimately, from some of the other design goals, it, it wasn't serving them in a way that made sense. Uh, so we removed them. But uh, yeah, that's, what, that's where we started to uh, try to come up with another fresh gameplay concept that felt different and engaging and interesting, but still leaned on some of the experience that we had built with, with Monster Train. Amazing. And how long have you been working on it? What sort of stage of development are you at currently? Yeah. So Inkbound has been in development since I want to say we started in maybe early, no, late 2020, actually. So (laughs) this is maybe like six, seven months after Monster Train came out, we had two or three people prototyping some things. Um, But we ended up freezing development to focus further on Monster Train. We did a DLC and ported the game to other platforms and so on. Um, But we really got back into kind of full team participation and working on Inkbound maybe around early 2021 or like Q2, maybe April Mm -hmm. 2021. So that would be just about two years that we've been working on it now full time. Um, and the game is going to be released in Steam Early Access on May 22nd, oh, wow. 2023, so next month. <laughs> Incredible. That'll be, uh, that'll be less than a month away, I reckon, by the time this podcast goes live. Fantastic. You hear it. I was going to say you heard it here first, folks, but probably not. You probably, <laughs> said, <laughs> you probably said it in many other places um, as loudly as possible. Well, Mark, that's, it's, it's absolutely super exciting. I can't wait to see how... Inkbound does for you after the success that your studio has had um, with your, as you mentioned, your escape velocity um, out of the wonderful co-development work that you've done and your own. Oh, how big's the crew now? Are you, are you still around your 15, 16? Have you, have you scaled? No, we're at 20 full-time employees that's now. Good. Oh, that's uh, a, that's so, a 25% expansion. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a bit bigger. Yeah. Um, you know, we're All eager right. to see where Inkbound goes. and okay. uh, But, yeah, it's an exciting time for us. It's also very nerve-wracking, as any developer knows. I when bet. you're launching your game, it's like, you know, we think it's going to do okay, but you yeah. you just can never know. Yeah. Did you do early access with Monster Train? We did not. So right, Monster okay. Train went straight into full launch. Um, yeah. But uh, we're trying it this time. I think right. uh, there's some key differences to kind of how we're approaching bringing the game to market. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I've never done an early access game. We're trying to make Inkbound really polished and great right out of the gate. Yeah. But one thing that we found on Monster Train that we really loved was working, I guess, alongside the community to continue to improve the title after the game came out, um, which is something that I hadn't really 
done much in my uh, you know career working on other titles that were more like finish it and ship it and the kind of yeah. the old school business model. Yeah, that's and so it. we did a bunch of free patches and DLC, and we did one paid DLC for Monster Train. We just like really loved that community interaction and iteration. Yeah, culture of feedback I mentioned. Yeah, um, and we seems like to do a perfect fit for your studio, right? Like, yeah, so we, yeah. we want to do more of that, and so that's why we're trying early access with Inkbound. Good on you, man. Yeah, I love early access. It's just such a beautiful style of development these days. Like you said, I, I, it's the same. You know, you work on these games for a publisher, you know, some licensed title, and you get the the DVD and you put it in a in an envelope. And well, for us, and you know, we'd send it to the states, and it's a yeah. lot. And then you just start, you you know, alt tab to some other project, and you'd get going again. It's a beautiful beautiful way of working we love it so much so best of luck for early access thank you so much for joining us today mark all right thank you very much thank you for joining us for the game makers notebook for more information on the academy of interactive arts and sciences our podcasts and our other initiatives please visit www.interactive.org